going to be looking at verses 9 through 20, and you heard me right, it did say Revelation. This is, can we just admit, this is a really weird book, (laughs) Uh, but that makes it all the more attractive. Uh, Last year, I was sitting with my uh, high school boys in our small group, and we were talking about, I don't know, something gospel or something like that, and one of the guys says, hey, 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 can we study Revelation? I'm like, yes, let's do it. Because the truth is, if you, if you can kind of sift through who's left behind and, and which world ruler is the Antichrist and what's the code that's going to teach us about when Jesus is coming back and what are the signs and all that earthquakes and all that stuff, if you can sift through, sift through all that stuff and maybe even kind of set that aside, what you see in the book of Revelation is this amazing picture of encouragement and hope for Christians who long to be faithful witnesses of Christ in a world that, let's face it, isn't really excited about that. And and even better than than this encouragement is this amazing picture of Christ, our King, all throughout this book, who the constant encouragement for us is, it doesn't matter what's happening out here, he's on the throne. And that's revelation. That is why I want to bring this word to you today from Revelation. So um, we're going to read verses 9 through 20. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, And the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Pray with me. King Jesus, we come before you this morning, and we long to know more of you, uh, to be captivated by you, to worship you, uh, and to let your word um, do its work in us and to change us. I pray now, Lord, that as I speak, that these words would not be mine, but that they would be yours, and that you would be magnified. And it's in uh, the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.
So as we look at John, this is the Apostle John, the, the disciple whom Jesus loved, and we look at his, his life at this point, he is an old man, uh, and he is on a place, an island called Patmos, which is an island uh, that was meant for political prisoners. Those that the Roman Empire wanted to send into exile, they sent to this place called Patmos. It was a little rocky place, uh, six miles wide, ten miles long, not very big, uh, not much going on there. And so um, the crazy thing, though, by the way, all this was happening, if you know your history, all this was happening under the, the Roman Emperor Domitian. And he was, he was a persecutor of Christians. He wanted to squelch the church. And uh, John himself, who had a community of Christians in Ephesus, uh, was in fact uh, a victim of that persecution. Fox's Book of Martyrs actually says that John, before he was sent into exile, was boiled alive in oil. And I, I, I start thinking about this, and, and I'm like... Let me do some research. So I, I looked this up on the internet, which is always true, and <laughs> I sift through some weird things, and, and finally you start to see some things that look maybe like they sound like they know what they're talking about. And it, and it says you, you would expect to probably be unconscious within two to three minutes. Another two to three minutes later, you're dead. So the first thing I think is, how's this guy still alive? It's got to be a miracle. It has to be that God preserved him. Somehow, some way, God made it so that John got out of that pot or whatever he was in alive. Uh, and if you, you can imagine the Romans, I'm sure this is pretty effective. 100% of the time it works every time. They're like, wait a minute. We just boiled this guy. And he's alive. You can just imagine John getting out of there like, Jesus said... He's going to let me live for a really long time, and obviously that's true, because I was just boiled alive, and and I'm still here. So, Romans are thinking, we got to get rid of this guy. We cannot let this guy hang around and start talking about the gospel, because obviously it's true. Obviously, this guy who's been talking about this Jesus fella, he gets boiled, and he's still alive. Well, the Jesus fella must be real. So let's send him to Patmos and just pretend he never existed. Well, that didn't work so well either because as you see in front of you, you have the book of Revelation written by John from Patmos. Um, But you think about his condition on Patmos. Obviously God preserved his life, but we don't know if if God healed him of the wounds that he would have had from being boiled alive. Um, So it's possible that John is living on Patmos in excruciating pain every single second of every single day. Um, And it's also certain that he's on Patmos feeling lonely and perhaps feeling like he has no way to serve. So maybe you can relate to that. I I don't know. I know there's a lot of people um, in our our world going through physical trials and and pain, and, and maybe there are people in this congregation right now who along with that, are also feeling as though they're not really sure how you can serve the Lord. We, we heard a wonderful missionary presentation this morning about uh, the need to send and the need to support. And I would tell you also, I've heard from other missionaries saying the great need they feel when they're on the field for, for prayer from sending churches and sending uh, Christians and, and also for communication to encourage them as they're on the field. 
And I, and I would suggest to you this is similar to the ministry that John found when he was on Patmos, a ministry of, as we heard this morning, holding the rope, of sending, of supporting, and of praying. And that's, that's what he says in verses 9 and 10. He says that he is their partner and their brother in the tribulation, in the kingdom, and in the patient endurance that are in Jesus Christ. Well, let's talk about that for a second. The tribulation, the kingdom, and the patient endurance. What does that mean? Well, tribulation, we understand. And again, don't, don't think of tribulation in terms of some seven-year thing that's going to happen and Christians won't be there. Don't think about that. Tribulation is, is, a, is a Greek word that means like a pressing together. Kind of like being pressed from, from all sides. It's similar to what Paul talks about. Um, and it's a metaphor for, for affliction, for how you feel when you, you're afflicted and you can't escape. And that's the tribulation that John is talking about. And John is saying to his community, I know that's what you're feeling. I've felt it before too. I'm a partner with you in that. I'm a brother with you in that. And he also lumps that in with the kingdom. And so what we see is that when we are people who are seeking first the kingdom of God, we can expect tribulation. This is, Jesus says this in John 16, 33. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So with the kingdom and with seeking the kingdom will come tribulation, whether that's physical persecution or suffering or, uh, or other types of, of mental or spiritual oppression or anything that you can imagine that would, you would classify as, as brokenness. It comes extra when you seek the kingdom. So John, John knew this, and he says, this is, this is why I was exiled. I was exiled because I was preaching the word, because I was seeking the kingdom. That's why I'm over here on this rock writing you a book. So, the, the cool thing about this is, if you, if you look what happens next, you think again about John, and the pain that he's in, probably, the loneliness he feels, the... He's got to be thinking, man, I really wish I could just go be with Jesus. And maybe that's why it says he's in the Spirit on the Lord's day. He is in the Spirit on the Lord's day. He is seeking Jesus. He wants to be in the presence of the Holy Spirit. That is the thing he wants most. In his suffering, he didn't pull away. He didn't try to escape. He pressed into the Spirit looking to be in the, spirit of the, the presence of the Spirit of God. And I would say, you know, I, I feel this. Often when we face trials, our first reaction is to, like, retreat. Let me, let me pull away. Let me, um, let me find something to escape into, a hobby or, or Netflix or something like that. We can all relate to that, right? I mean, in fact, we live in a, in a world that's selling virtual reality. I mean, have you seen it now? Like, PlayStation's got the virtual reality goggles coming out. Y'all, for... Pretty soon, you're going to be walking around 24-7 with just virtual reality goggles on. Nobody's going to know what's going on inside there. It's going to be weird. But that is a, that's a fantasy life, and, and, and that's not a solution. Now, I realize that's an extreme example, but John's testimony on Patmos shows us that, that to be faithful witnesses for the kingdom, for Christ, in a broken world, a world that is filled everywhere you go, you cannot escape it. And the solution is not to try to escape it or run away from it or numb it. 
The key is, is actually to press into the Spirit. To, to look to the, to, to the Holy Spirit of God. To find strength in Him as we face trials. Not to avoid the trials. To find our strength in Him. So John, having patiently endured all that he has, he is in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And what happens next is truly amazing. Because we see one like a son of man. Well, first he hears a loud voice, tells him to write the letters to the seven churches, which are in, in Asia Minor, and it's an encyclical that would go to all different churches. But then when he turns around, he sees who is speaking to him, and it's one like a son of man. This is Jesus, and this is his favorite title for himself, right? In, in the Gospels, he often refers to himself as the son of man, um, and it points us back to Daniel 7, 13 and 14, uh, where it says, And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So Jesus, by announcing himself this way, and, and, and John by referring to him as one like a son of man, is, is letting us know from the get-go, the king is here. The one who has dominion is here. The one who has authority over all kingdoms of the earth, in fact, over the entire universe, is here. And that's who's speaking to John right now. Jesus, in Revelation, has authority over everything. He's revealing himself to be the sovereign ruler of the universe. John spent a lot of time with Jesus while Jesus was doing his earthly ministry. Maybe he spent the most time with Jesus, could be argued. He saw miracles. He saw Jesus transfigured. He saw Jesus suffer. He saw Jesus die. As far as we know, the only apostle that actually hung around when Jesus went to the cross. He saw Jesus after he had risen, and he saw Jesus ascend. But John has never seen Jesus like this. Jesus presents himself to John as the risen Savior, but also as the ruling king who has dominion over everything. And he, he calls himself, later on, he, he refers to himself as the first and the last. So he's the one who has come before us. And we re, read about that in places like John 1, 1 through 2, where it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. We also read about it in Colossians 1, 15. Speaking of Jesus being the firstborn over all creation. So Jesus is the first, but he's also the last. Read about this later on in Colossians 1, also in Revelation 1, 5, uh, which talks about Jesus being the firstborn of the dead. So he has also, in terms of what he's done, he's created, but he's also, he's died and he's risen and he's gone ahead of us. He's the first of many to rise. So from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, it's talking about how Jesus has been through literally anything and everything that we could ever possibly go through. And he's already there at the end. He is the great I Am, the risen Savior, the Alpha and Omega. He stands simultaneously. This will blow your mind if you think about it. If time is a bubble, 
then don't think about that. It's, it's crazy. But he stands simultaneously at the beginning and at the end of all things. He's already at the end of the story. And John says that in addition to this, in addition to, to being at the beginning and at the end, he stands with the seven lampstands. So what does that mean? Well, later on in verse 20, you see that the lampstands represent the seven churches. And, and so John is saying that Jesus is with the seven churches. He's standing among them. This has got to be such a great comfort to those seven churches, right? What about us? Is this for us too? I, absolutely. This is for, for all churches, all time, for Jesus' church universal. He is with us. He is standing with us. That's why he can say that nothing is going to overcome the church. The gates of hell will not overcome it because he is with us. And that's also why we are described as lampstands, not lamps. We're not lights. Our job is to shine the light of Christ in a dark and lost and broken world, to be faithful witnesses. And we can do this because he is with us. Well, what else? We, we have a lot of interesting imagery here in these middle verses about what John sees. And um, at first glance, it looks like Jesus' appearance, that John is describing what he looks like. Uh, but I would suggest that, John, that uh, Jesus actually does not have a sword in his mouth. He's not walking around with a blade protruding out of his mouth. But this is, instead of an appearance, this is a description of Jesus' attributes. And so I want to, to briefly go through these. Um, it says he's wearing a long robe and a golden sash, which is actually the uniform of a high priest. Uh, we read about that in Exodus 28. So Jesus is our great high priest, the one who has atoned for the sins of his people, the one who has been through the same suffering, the same trials that his people can expect to go through. We read about that in Hebrews 2, 17 and 18, that he has been made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He has taken our sins upon himself. And dealt with them. And he's made us right before God. We are justified because of the work of Christ. Because he has given us his righteousness. And he now intercedes for us. So that when we pray, we can, we can be heard. Next it says that he has white hair. Maybe he looks, he's, he's Gandalf the white now. He's not Gandalf the gray. He, he knew it was coming. Daniel 7.9 actually says, as I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. So this is a, basically John is saying Jesus is divine. He is, he is co-equal with the Father. Uh, he is equal in power and glory with the Father, with the Holy Spirit. Next it says his eyes are on fire. He's got x-ray vision, like Superman. Literally, yeah, that's what it means. He can see everything. He sees everything. He sa it says that he has feet of bronze. And so what this is saying is that from head to toe, Jesus is glorious and majestic. Everything about him screams glory. It says he has a voice like many waters. This, this also should hearken us back to the Old Testament, to Ezekiel 43 too, 
which says, And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east, and the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. So this is saying that, that Jesus, his voice is the same as the Almighty's voice. He has the voice of God. It also says that he has seven stars in his right hand, and we know from verse 20 that these seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Uh, another way to look at this is that is there are messengers appointed to serve Jesus, and they're protected. They're in his right hand. If they're in his right hand, they're not leaving. They're protected. They have total security in serving Jesus. Jesus protects, and he also goes on the offensive with the sword that is coming out of his mouth. I'm going to spend a little bit more time on this. Uh, the two-edged sword, if you, if you know the, about Roman weaponry, the two-edged sword was the sharpest weapon that a Roman soldier possessed. And the word of God is even sharper. Hebrews 4.12, you may know this verse, says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the, vis- the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word, the sword of the spirit, is able to, is external. We need to start thinking about the word of God and of truth as something being totally from outside of us. A lot of people today think that truth comes from within us, from what we feel or what we believe or what we think, but that is not true. Some truth, maybe, but not all truth. Not absolute truth. Absolute truth comes from the Word of God alone. It comes from outside of us. Uh, and, and so this, for, for witnesses, for those who would be faithful witnesses of Jesus Christ, we have to realize we are in a war, really a two-front war. We're on the, on the Western side, in Western culture, we, we're fighting against pluralism that says what I just said, which is that truth comes from within you and it's determined by whatever you feel. On the other side, we're fighting a war against false teaching. Other religions around the world, they're saying, no, 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 truth, we have the truth, but it's false. So we must be careful as, as faithful witnesses of Jesus Christ in a, in a broken culture, in a broken world, we must be careful to always go back to the scriptures as our truth, the word of God as our truth. The word of God it's how Jesus created. And it is by, his, by the power of his word, or rather by the word of his power, he upholds the universe. And then in 2 Thessalonians 2.8, we read that one day, by his word, he will defeat the evil one. He will defeat Satan once and for all. It says, then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. From, from start to finish, it is by God's word that Jesus creates, sustains, and then finally restores all things. The last image we see is that, is that Jesus has a face shining like the sun at full strength. Our sun is 93 million miles away. It's pretty far. But if you look straight at that sun on a bright day, you're not going to be seeing very well for a few minutes. Imagine if you were close to it and you looked at it full strength. Ouch. So it's no wonder that John fell down like a dead man when he saw this Jesus. 
Uh, There's a great quote by a guy named William Hendrickson. He says that Jesus is pictured as clothed with power and majesty and with awe and terror. The entire picture, taken as a whole, is symbolical of Christ, the Holy One, coming to purge his churches and to punish those who are persecuting his elect. It is a terrifying image. It's much like when Isaiah goes into the throne room of God, he falls down, dead, like, woe is me, I'm ruined. John, same response, he's overwhelmed, he's incapacitated, he feels unworthy, and yet, because Jesus is unlike any God that we could imagine, this majestic, this terrifying Jesus does not destroy John, far from it. He reaches out with his right hand and touches him and speaks to him words of hope and encouragement. He says, fear not. John had heard this before. You remember when Jesus went out and walked on water and the disciples are afraid? In Matthew 14, 27, it says that Jesus spoke to them saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. He, and he alone is qualified to say this to us. He is our great high priest, the one who has atoned for our sin, the one who intercedes for us, and we do not need to fear whether or not we have salvation if we are in Christ. We cannot lose that because he won't lose it. He is God. He sees all. We do not need to fear anything because nothing is out of his control. He protects us. We are in his right hand. We do not need to fear danger. His word is power and truth. And so as witnesses, we do not need to fear that what we're telling people isn't true. It is true. It is the truth. And then finally, he holds the keys of death and Hades. And that, friends, tells us that even death cannot harm us. Ultimately, neither can persecution, physical pain, relational heartache, anything that we might deal with, that any trial that you might be going through cannot harm your soul if you belong to Christ. So we need not fear because Jesus is with us. Fear, I think of it as an uncertainty or a doubt that things will turn out all right in the end. And if we are ruled by fear, we are, with our lives, we are communicating a false witness. We may say that we believe in Christ, but if we are ruled by fear, we're communicating that we really don't believe it. Because if we really believe in what, who Christ is and what he is doing right now, then we have a certainty that he is in control and that things will, for us, turn out all right in the end because he is alive forevermore. If we believe the Bible, we know that King Jesus stands, not just at the beginning of time as creator, but at the end of time and the one, as the one who, in whom all things are reconciled and all things are fulfilled There's no need to wonder if everything will turn out all right in the end because Jesus is already there. Have you ever read a book or a movie and it was really suspenseful and you're like, man, I wouldn't feel so suspenseful if I knew how this was going to end. So maybe you flip to the back and you're like, okay, great. Now I can read this without anxiety. Or or maybe your life, real life is, is very anxious for you. Maybe you're very fearful over different circumstances in your life and you Maybe you think 
if I just knew how this was going to end, I'd be okay. When it comes to our life, we know how this story ends. This is why Revelation, as I was talking about before, is such a wonderful book. Jesus is at the end of the story. He's told us the ending. We know how this turns out, and it turns out well for us because of King Jesus. We can live within this story then as faithful witnesses, not fearing anything, not even fearing death, because our king holds the keys to death. And then one, one final thing I would say, uh, maybe you are hearing, this, this is not true for you, that you, you don't know this King Jesus. You've never, maybe you've never heard of him before, or maybe you have, and you've just said, I, that's not for me. I, I do have to say, I feel like that this book, Revelation, is a warning to you is a warning that if you refuse King Jesus, if you persist in in a life of of sin and idolatry apart from him, that you are aligning yourself against him. That That is unwise. He is Lord. He is King. And it doesn't matter whether you claim that for yourself or not. He is still Lord and King. And one day every knee will bow and every knee or every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And my encouragement to you, friends, is do not wait to do this. Do not wait to make that confession for yourself. Look to Jesus as Savior now, as the one who takes away your sin and gives you his righteousness so that you might live a life of purpose and meaning as witnesses for Christ Trust Him with your life. Place your life under His Lordship and you will find that not only is He the risen Savior who rules the universe with absolute authority, but He is a good and loving Master who would reach out to you with His right hand, stand with you and protect you and give you every reason to hope and to trust and not to fear. Pray with me. Our Father, we are so grateful to you for your age-old plan to save us, to set apart a people for yourself, and to be merciful and kind to that people even when we have been unfaithful. And we know that all of this comes together in King Jesus, and we look to him now as our hope as we face whatever trial might come our way. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.